Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Before we begin today's episode, introductions are in order. I am Frank Giles, Editor-in-Chief of Agnet Media's Print Publications. I recently joined the company and I will be taking over the podcast from Taylor Hillman. Taylor did a great job and in fact he's teaching me some of the ropes of podcasting so I appreciate that. I've gotten to know many of you over the years. I was the editor of Florida Grower Magazine and we covered citrus extensively and will continue to do so. In fact, Agnet Media recently purchased Florida Grower. So between Citrus Industry, Florida Grower, and our specialty crop industry magazines, we've covered a lot of ground and citrus is a huge part of that. So I look forward to working with you all and continuing that tradition uh, and doing this podcast. And with that, we'll get started with today's episode. I'm here with Michael Rogers, the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. Michael, I hear the UFIFAS team loaded up and headed to Tallahassee here recently for the annual Gator Day at the state legislature. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Uh, yeah, we just recently got back from Tallahassee. We took a, a group up here from the CREC in Lake Alfred uh, to participate in Gator Day. Um, that happens at the state capitol um, every year, and it's a day that um, a number of the different colleges within the University of Florida um, go up to the capitol, and we set up displays and, and try to um, let folks know what all is happening in, in UF, the great things that are happening across the university. And, of course, we have the uh, IFAS booth set up, and uh, for the past two Gator Days, um, the Citrus uh, breeding program has been in, in the spotlight um, at, at the IPAS booth. And so this year we had a, a group, uh, uh, our breeders and some, some of their, their staff, we took a number of, of both juice samples and fresh fruit samples up for the booth and set up and gave out samples to um, some of our elected officials and their staff who came through to let them sample some of the latest stuff coming out of the IPAS citrus breeding program and uh, and then the feedback was really positive on that when they got to test test taste some of the things that are coming out and see what the future holds for the citrus industry. I hear the fresh uh, citrus and juice samples were a big hit. Um, someone told me that like 750 cups of juice were handed out. Tell us more. Yeah, I think so. It was, it was probably around 11 to 12 gallons of juice total was poured that we served up in small glasses. I think we had about five different um, uh, juices uh, from different uh, juice fruit varieties that have come out of the IFAS breeding program for people to sample. And and uh, so we let them go through and trial the different the different uh, new juices. And, and the, the overall, the comments that we got back were really positive and everybody was surprised at how good it tasted and and said it was some of the varieties, especially like OLL20, for example, which is a new um, uh, juice fruit released from IFAS just recently. Uh, a lot of folks said, you know, some of the best juice they'd ever tasted. And so uh, that, that was great feedback to get from from folks who were tasting it for the first time. But but also, again, just to show that uh, you know, we've got a lot of new stuff coming out in IFAS and uh, from our breeding programs that, that's really positive. And, and despite all the negative things that are happening in our industry right now with HLB, um, there are some bright spots and and uh, some new things for the future that we're excited about. 
And I guess it's important for you guys to be there and remind the state legislators how important citrus is to the state of Florida and the growers that it supports. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it goes beyond just IFAS. I mean, we have the legislature provides support to so many different groups, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, the state of Florida, um, some of our DSOs or, or groups like CRDF and other groups that get support uh, from legislature. And, you know, again, we're, we're there not just representing IPAS, but, but all of the industry uh, putting our good, a good foot forward to say, you know, there are positive things happening in citrus uh, statewide, despite all the problems we have. And uh, just keep, keep that at the forefront um, as they're making decisions going forward. Michael, I understand there's a couple of events you want to tell us a little bit more about. Uh, fill us in on the details. Um, there are a number of events around the state. I'll just highlight two uh, that are coming up. Um, the first one um, is actually a little bit different than uh, it's not necessarily a traditional citrus production, but we actually have a, a symposium happening on finger lime uh, production, and that's happening on March the 23rd. Um, this is actually going to be a virtual meeting, uh, so uh, you don't have to travel. If, if there's folks that are interested in the work on finger limes, um, and if they're interested in, in jumping into that small little niche market, uh, we have a virtual symposium going on. Uh, you can go online, go to our, the CREC website and to our calendar or current events and um, find the link to register for that. Um, but, you know, the background on the finger lime story is that um, we, we've had some of our researchers working on finger limes, not necessarily to develop um, a, a new variety for Florida, but we were using finger limes as part of our breeding program. Uh, you know, taking some of that um, tolerance uh, that's that ex to HLB that exists in finger limes, breed that into some of our other uh, citrus varieties, whether it, you know it's round oranges or some other fresh fruit, to try to develop varieties that are more tolerant. So that's work that continues. But but as an offshoot of this, there's been a lot of a growing interest in, in in people wanting to grow finger limes as a as a new crop, as a specialty crop. Um, and so that's that's kind of the purpose of this symposium is to reach out to those folks who have an interest in finger line production. We, we've got folks uh, not only from UF, but also from California and also even Australia who are going to be participating in this virtual symposium, uh, letting folks know, uh, you know, what, what's available as far as production of finger lime. Some of the, we have two new varieties that have come out of, of UF that are available to grow that are adapted well here in Florida. And so, again, uh, March 23rd, that's a 1 to 5 p.m., and it's online. You can register and attend that uh, free of charge. The second meeting that's happening, um, and this is still, um, there'll be more information coming on this soon, but go ahead and mark your calendars for April the 5th for the Citrus Growers Institute. Uh, this happens, this is put on by our Citrus Extension agents, um, and they hold this uh, historically. It's been held at the South Florida State College in Avon Park. And uh, that'll be happening again this year. I think it was virtual the past year. Uh, again, the April 5th, there'll be more information coming out about the Citrus Growers Institute. So be, be watching your email and, and announcements and the newsletters coming out. And we hope we, that everybody will, will participate in that. We hope to have a good lineup for that, that symposium. And um, uh, look forward to seeing everybody in person there in Avon Park on April the 5th. With that, Michael, we'll let you go. Appreciate it and look forward to talking to you next month. I'm here at the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford today with Kirsten Peltz-Tolinski. She's an entomologist and associate center director at the CREC. 
Um, we're here to talk about a new grant that you have recently received from the uh, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, NEFA for short. But before we get into that, I just I know you've studied uh, this Asian citrus psyllid for a long time. Just to talk a little bit about how long you've worked on this pest and where you would rank it in the pantheon of insect pests globally. Wow, that's a... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. So, yes, I've been at the Citrus Research and Education Center for, oh gosh, um, a little over uh, 12 years. So, um, I've been working with the Asian Citrus Psyllid for all of that time. Um, in, in terms of um, the problems that this pest has caused, you know, to rank it, um, you know, amongst other pests, it's, it's a one of the most significant pests of agriculture, right? Certainly we can talk about pests in other sectors that maybe have had a, a more, um, you know, a global impact, but in terms of, you know, citrus and, and fruit agriculture, this is, is one of the most devastating um, because of its role as a, a vector for this pathogen that causes grading disease. Good deal. And, you know, in your study of this, what has been the most surprising thing uh, that you've observed about this pest, the psyllid? So the most surprising thing about this pest, I think for me has been um, that it is uh, capable of acquiring this um, pathogen so efficiently from the citrus trees, even in cases where we're not necessarily seeing really high titers in a tree, the, the psyllid is just really good um, at amplifying the bacteria. And we have had a very challenging time trying to um, disrupt that acquisition process. So um, it, it, it has been um, a little bit surprising that, um, you know, the, the psyllid is still out there flying around with, with this large amount of inoculum in it. Let's, let's turn now to your project with NEFA uh, that was recently funded. Just give us some background of what that is and what it will look like and what you'll be working on. Yeah. So the project with NEFA is uh, one that has been many years in the making. So it's really the culmination of um, other previous work that we've been doing in my lab and also in the lab of my uh, collaborator, Bryony Bunning, um, who's a faculty member up in Gainesville at University of Florida. Um, and the basis of this project actually started as far back as a, a NEFA project that we did called the New Psyllid Project, which, which some listeners might have heard of. Um, but what we're trying to do is really um, do a pseudo-biological control, um, utilizing the microbial community that's already present inside the psyllid. Um, psyllids have a bacteria that, that naturally occurs inside of it. Um, and, and our goal is really to use this bacteria to manipulate psyllids so they're no longer vectors of the, the pathogen that causes greening disease. And so um, a lot of the work that uh, my, my collaborator has been doing um, is to identify some of the peptides um, that uh, are associated with the gut that, that are part of the process by which Liberobacter can get into the psyllid and infect it, right? And so we want to um, come up with a way that we can get those peptides produced in the psyllid, right? And so we really wanna use that bacteria that lives in the psyllid to produce some of these peptides um, so that the psyllid um, is not able to harbor Liberobacter effectively anymore. Um, so that's really the goal of the project. Um, and, and part of that um, is also understanding how Liberobacter infects the psyllid. So once we identify 
these peptides that are involved in this transmission process, we can also use those to, to sort of target other ways to, to control you know, transmission in the field. So basically, that's just cutting off the bridge between the bug and the tree, right? Exactly, exactly. So what we really want to do is, is prevent it from getting out there in the first place. And this is really important because, you know, we need to be able to replant trees and not have them get inoculated with a pathogen immediately. And you don't want a big source of pathogen out there anyway if you're trying to apply treatments to trees that are, are going to be in any way knocking down the barobacter, right? We don't want them to get immediately reinfected. So so being able to manage that, that um, infection, not just in the trees, but also in the solids is important. Very good. Now, you know, would, once this is developed and, um, you know, has application in the field, would this be something that would be perfect or would it, uh, would it be an instance where these altered populations would need to be like reintroduced periodically mm -hmm. to, to take over the wild population? Right. And so I think that anytime you're doing something like this, it's hard to say that something is perfect. There's always some leakiness in the system. And the nice thing that we have um, to base this project on is the work that's been done with, say, Tamarixia and some of the breeding and release um, types of programs that have gone on with that. And so I would envision something similar where, you know, this technology would let us release psyllids that are able to uh, uh, go out there and not be vectors, right? But but periodically there may be pockets where you would want to do another introduction, or maybe you have a grove that you just like to make sure you're knocking down your local population and, and reintroducing these guys and letting them mate with the native population that remains. So ideally that you know trait could take over, um, but but certainly we expect that there would need to be some reintroductions over time. Excellent. And, and for growers, you know, if this, if this research is successful, I mean, we've touched on this to some extent, but how would this change their psyllid control programs? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, so you would still need to think about psyllid control from the perspective of tree health, right? And, and um, some of the work that my colleagues are doing that shows that the trees are, are responding to stress that is caused just by psyllid feeding is certainly a component, right? Especially when trees are infected with Liberobacter. But the threat of um, transmission would be reduced, right? You know, some of this work, um, uh, Lucas Stalinski has talked about quite a bit, right? Where you have that stress that, that feeding um, puts on the plants. And so this would maybe be something that um, would look like management of psyllids prior to the discovery of HLB, right? And now let's just talk a little bit about timeline. I know that's a lot of that's yet to be mm -hmm. sorted out, but you've got the grant now what's next and you know any idea of how long this will take to to sort through yeah so by the end of the project which is a two-year project we expect to have a candidate that we have um, picked that's a peptide that can be expressed or a double-stranded rna that can be expressed in this um, bacteria that lives in the insect and the next step would be to, to try it in the field right and so we're working on developing the, the relationship with, with the regulatory uh, agencies that will, will have to help move that part forward. But in the meantime, we're also going to have these identification pieces, right? The either a peptide or a double-stranded RNA that we can still take forward and, and maybe utilize in more traditional ways, right? To apply to trees or apply in some way um, that psyllids will pick it up in the field and, and the same type of um, results would, would occur, right? Where psyllids are, are, are not 
not as efficiently transmitting Liberobacter. But the goal of this project is to have a long-term solution in place that we don't have to maintain to, to quite the same degree. Um, so, you know, that is a little bit further down the road, but we expect after two years we'll have something that we can, you know, test in the field. And, so there'll be winners and losers that you'll have identified, hopefully, by the, by the time the project comes through. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we do a lot of screening beforehand um, to identify good candidates. So by the time it makes it to the point where we want to try it in the psyllid, in the bacteria, then, then we have a good idea that it's going to work. And then really it's just tweaking it a little bit to make sure that um, it is being produced as efficiently as it needs to be and, and that it's getting to where it needs to go to interfere with transmission. But um, yes, the, the, the part that we're looking at now is really isolating the best candidates for, for this process. And, and we're, we have a lot um, of options, but um, we have really good bioassays to kind of get at that. Fantastic. And finally, is there anything else that you'd like to add? This is a really uh, great project that is um, the type of work that will allow us to explore other ways of managing pathogens going forward. And it's also going to be uh, a tool that we can use for other purposes. So, you know, this might be a tool that we could use to even manage insecticide resistance at some point. So it's not just a tool that we're going to be using to block transmission, right? It, this ability to manipulate the, the uh bacteria that live in the psyllid will allow us perhaps to do other things that might benefit pest management as well. well thank you very much, Kirsten. That was a great conversation and good luck with the project. Thank you. We're here at the Citrus Research and Education Center with Davey Katiampakini. He is an associate professor of soil and water science. And Davey, I know you've been doing a lot of presentations on citrus nutrition late, lately. You had some presentations in February, a uh, citrus irrigation and nutrition management workshop. Talk a little bit about some of the things that, that uh, you would cover during that event. Uh, thank you so much, Frank. Uh, during the uh, irrigation and nutrient management workshop, I'll be covering the work we have done for the past three to four years on use of macronutrients such as nitrogen, calcium and magnesium on how to use those in a way that improves tree health and performance and yield and juice quality. But also I'll be covering the work I've done for the past four years on micronutrients. So I've been working on manganese, boron, zinc and iron and we've seen some tremendous success where we have uh, increased the amounts of micronutrients over the current recommendations. So we have done that work for about three to four years and we hope that information is what growers need at this point on how they can improve their production practices. Very good. You know, we know now that the way HLB affected trees react to plant nutrition has been like a continuous learning project or process ever since that disease came on the scene 15 years ago. Growers have learned different ways and researchers have learned different ways. Uh, one of the things we do know is that these guidelines for healthy trees probably don't work for HLB affected trees. You know, how will that affect recommendations for citrus nutrition and irrigation going into the future? Uh, thank you so much. So uh, what we are learning is that uh, trees that are 
affected by HLB or that have been infected by citrus greening tend to lose root mass, uh, have fewer roots. They tend to have less canopy, so they tend to lose a lot of their leaves. And they tend to struggle in terms of how they take up the nutrients from the soil and the water. So going forward, uh, we are hoping that by either putting a little bit more micronutrients in small doses over time, kind of spoon feeding the tree, and putting the macronutrients like nitrogen or calcium and magnesium in such a way that uh, you, you provide what I call balanced and constant nutrition. You give the tree as much as it needs, but in small amounts over time. Then that seems to be working better in our studies, both at the research centers and also in the grower sites where we are testing this. So going forward, we have had our recommendations for healthy trees well fixed. But going forward, we are hoping to put this information we have generated for the past three to four years or longer into new guidelines for HLB affected trees that growers can include in their toolbox of how they manage trees that are infected by greening. So hopefully the information we provide improves the tree performance and also improves uh, yields and the bottom line of the growers in terms of juice quality, but also improves the overall longevity of the tree. Uh, the trees live longer and produce longer than they have been with green. That's right. I mean, I know the, the HLB affected trees really can't stand any stress. And like the healthy trees before HLB, they could, they, you almost wanted them to stress a little bit at some points during the season. So that gets back to what you were saying with that balanced and constant nutrition is so important with these trees. Just elaborate a little bit on that. Exactly. Uh, what we are learning is that uh, with HOB, those trees have so much uh, stresses that they have to withstand. So, for example, if you have low soil pH, uh, the soils are very acidic, those trees will crumble. Or if you have very high pH and the soil is very alkaline, those trees will also struggle to acquire some nutrients. So you want to keep the soil conditions good, the water conditions good, and the environment also, you want, we want to keep it good in such a way that the trees can take up the nutrients in the soil and take up the water. The healthy trees in the past, you could put so little nutrients and get away with it or put so little water and together get away with it. But with the HOB affected trees, you want to put the tree in a sweet spot. You want to give it just as much as it needs over time. So others call it spoon feeding. I call it balanced and constant nutrition. It's the same concept. So either you are using irrigation, so you're putting small amounts, maybe every two weeks you're putting small amounts into the root zone, or you're using controlled release fertilizers. I know some growers use that, and I recommend using like six or nine month products where they pour the fertilizer and sits in the result for a while and the tree takes as needed. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you're using uh, regular soluble fertilizer, growers, some growers use that, I recommend pulling that out maybe every quarter, not putting everything all at once because we have Florida Sunday soils and it's raining every day. So if you put that at once, you lose all that to the groundwater. But if you put small doses every quarter for soluble products of fertilizer, 
that will work good for HOB affected trees. And remembering that those root masses are diminished, that soluble could just go right past them and, and, and not get caught up. So that's a great point. You're talking about also the uh, process of updating the recommendations and like the handbooks and various things. And you've been doing work for three or four years. Talk a little bit about the timeline going forward in, in updating those manuals and recommendations. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, we have been working on multiple recommendations, including the SL253, which is the nutrition guide for citrus, uh, Florida citrus trees. That one comes out every 10 years. So obviously what we are planning is that we worked, we had one that was produced in 1995, and a second version was done in 2008. We followed through with another one in 2020. What I'm hoping to do is that the next cycle, so by 2030, we come up with another guideline that has two sets. So we have one that builds on the healthy trees, and then we have a separate one purely for HOB affected trees. So growers really have a toolbox that's purely tailored to address those trees that have grown. And they have this tool that will have guidelines that, one, improve the performance of the growth, but also meet the state guidelines for best management practices. That's where we want to be. We want to make sure that growers don't have headaches on how they fertilize their trees and what about, oh, we, we exceed the state limits and all that. We want to make sure we provide guidelines that are usable uh, for the grower, but also uh, allowable by the state. So uh, to just get back to your point on how long the process takes, I would say to come up with a solid booklet, that would be like 10 years. But for now, I would say we are looking at a timeline of eight years. But to come up with uh, short-term guidelines, the ones that I first recommend, usually we, for citrus, we, we go for at least three to four years. So right now I'm confident about the results I've been talking about, that we've done some work for about three to four years. I'm feeling confident that, okay, what we have now, we can come up with extension bulletins. We'll put some in the stress industry magazine, which is good, so growers have some information. But we distill that further into simpler guidelines in extension bulletins that growers can look at. And we'll put that in simpler language, emphasizing which rates work, how much, how much yield you're going to get by putting so much, or how much likely movement beyond the zone you can get. So hopefully what we'll be providing is something that's good for the growth, for the bottom line, but also good for the environment. Fantastic. And you mentioned that there, you know, with all the attention that's been placed on nutrient management and the best management practices, uh, you presented some findings on how uh, nutrient leaching could be reduced with some of the work you're doing. You mentioned, you talked a little bit about that earlier, but just, just talk a little more about that. Oh, yes. So that, that's a good question. Uh, because all the time as researchers, we are, we are concerned whenever we feel like growers are put in a corner to come up with uh, practices that meet some specific uh, guidelines for water quality or for nutrient content in the tissue. Yeah, so we would like to uh, pass on guidelines that work well for and are easy for growers to implement. So what we are learning right now is that when you fertigate uh, bi-weekly, for example, if you are using fertigation and you are fertigating bi-weekly, we have realized that we're able to maintain the nitrates in the top six inches of the root zone. And we monitored the root zone from the top six inches, the next 
6 to 12 inches and the bottom uh, 12 to 24 inches and further down. Wow. We kept all those nitrates in the top 6 inches in a study in Mokali, in the southwest floodwoods, and in a study on the ridge, so right here in, up in Lake Alfred. So uh, that was one strategy. The other strategy that we have learned is where uh, uh, growers are using uh, controlled fertilizers, especially in the months that we have so much rain from June through September, and the back off from soluble fertilizer sources, we have seen that that also has kept the fertilizer in the top six inches, and actually with negligible leaching. Yeah, so, and if there's any leaching, it doesn't exceed the state guidelines. And then we have kept all those nutrients in the optimum level in the leaf tissue, in the, in the leaf test results. So that is, I think, like those two best management practices are what uh, seems to work good for our groves and I think for, and for some of the sites we're working in the grove, groves of growers and also in our own groves at CRIC and other research centers. We have seen similar experiences. So use of fertigation getting every two weeks or using controlled use fertilizers in the rainy months from June through September. That's that's fantastic because you know any any of that product that leaches away is wasted money for the grower so that's great work uh, that you guys are putting out there. Um, finally let's talk a little bit big picture how effective can nutrition strategies be combined with other crop protection practices to mitigate HLB? Yeah, so uh, we had a study uh, for about, now we are in the fifth year, which is the final year, but Arialas at four years, I can't hide my results anymore. We are seeing some good results with um, using some specific fertilizer blends. So those blends contain nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, manganese, boron, zinc, and all those sweet nutrients that are ideal for the plant. And then in those blends, so there are different proportions, what we, have, we did in the, those studies, we combined either a blend with some crop protection product. So we had two products we we're looking at. There's one called Algiet. It's kind of a phosphate, but used to control fungal diseases, and also sometimes you can use that to control nematodes. And we thought we could also use that control silage. That was the, that was a whole purpose of that product. And then there's another product called Villum. So that product is used to control nematodes in the soil. So when this pest damages the roots, usually the tree has incapa is incapacitated. You can't take up any more nutrients or water. So we use this product to try to monitor the uh, way you can control nematodes. So what we have learned is that. When we use the blends with either of these products, either Aliet or Vellum, we had better root growth. Then we saw dense canopies, so the trees were very dense and able to retain more fruit. So we saw negligible uh, fruit growth. And then we saw, I think a number that growers would love to hear about, better bricks. So bricks up to about, I think it was about 10.5 and above. So that figure is a magic number for growers. So we're able to keep the bricks at that level and the fruit yield, we're able to keep the fruit yield between 290 and 310 boxes per acre. And those numbers are magical numbers for growers. 
and every tree was able to keep about to produce about close to on average 0.8 to 1.03 boxes per tree. So that was a lot of fruit for those trees with HOB. So I thought that maybe that information would be helpful. If they tried to use such combinations, it wouldn't be too much because, for example, for earlier we were putting that four times in the year. So once in May, once in June, another time in July, the final time in, in, in August. So we're targeting the summer months. For Venom, we're putting that twice. So sometime in, in March, and then we put again some, six weeks later, sometime in April or May. And we got very good results, a better nematode control. And somehow we also managed to uh, control the uh, HNC tosylid, the one that causes graining. So the trees responded well. We saw maintain, maintenance of good canopies for the trees, better fruit retention. And I've seen a concern by growers about fruit drop. We didn't see that as a concern in this study for four years. Yeah, so those are some of the interesting things you are observing. So I've realized, yes, we can talk about nutrition. It's an important toolbox. But let's not forget that we need to manage the other aspects of the plant. So the diseases, the pests should be optimized. Make sure you lower pest population, you lower disease pressure by using, for example, these products I've mentioned, but maybe there are many more out there that we can also use together with the nutrition management program. That way you can get better performance of the trees in terms of yield, but also juice quality. Better bricks and better production. I know growers will be very interested in learning more about that, Davey. Thank you for joining us today. It was some great information. Uh, anybody out there sees Davey on a program, you should check it out. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.